Hebrews chapter 9. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we just ask your blessing upon this time. We thank you for the praise reports, Lord. We thank you for just the blessings that you bestow. We know that every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation, no shadow, no shifting. So thank you so much, Lord. And uh, go before us. Bless this time as we offer it up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so last time we, we got stuck, or the book of Hebrews, the author to the Hebrews got stuck trying to introduce Melchizedek, and he had to go back to, he didn't want to go back to the elementary principles of things, but he definitely had to kind of set up this Melchizedek, uh, and he did that in about a chapter and a half. And then last week we, we looked at Melchizedek, and Melchizedek was a person that Abraham brought um, sacrifices to, tithes. He paid tithes to. And uh, the greater is blessed, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So this Melchizedek, this priest of God, uh, seemed to be this higher guy than Abraham. And we know that the nation of Israel looks to Abraham as the man, right? He's the father of the faith. And so everything we've been doing, everything we've been going through in the book of Hebrews is showing that Jesus is better than all of the types, all of the pictures, all of the shadows in the Old Testament, because all of those shadows were pointing to Jesus. And so again, today we'll be looking at the tabernacle. And remember that everything is a picture of Jesus in the scriptures. It's pointing to Jesus. It speaks of Jesus. It, it uh, drives us towards all that he has done for us. And so um, if you're ever confused about a section of scripture, um, Chuck Missler said, write it down and just put the date and then ask God to reveal it to you later on. And ultimately what you're going to do is you're going to see that it points somehow to Jesus Christ. And so it's just a, a trip. Let's go ahead and take a look. We're going to go through, we're going to go sections at a time. First section is verses one through five. He continues on and he says, then indeed, even if the first covenant had ordinances, of divine service and the earthly sanctuary for a tabernacle was prepared the first part in which was the lampstand the table and the showbread which is called the sanctuary and behind the second veil the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold in which were golden uh, the golden pot that had the manna Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the covenant and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And so all of this is found throughout the book of Leviticus, throughout the book of Exodus, uh, it mentions in the book of Numbers, just all of these, um, how, how God wanted them designed, how he wanted them made um, exactly to the detail, uh, the dimensions and what was going to be overlaid with gold, what was going to be solid gold. Um, the laver for washing, just all of these things. And so we're not going to really break those down. They all point to Jesus some way, somehow. Okay? I will point out some of them. But as he mentions here in verse 4, the manna, what did it do? It reminded Israel of God's provision and their ungratefulness. Okay? So remember that because we as well fit in that group, unfortunately, Sometimes we're not grateful. When we complain, we don't complain about our circumstances. We complain about the God who is the God of our circumstances. And I know we don't maybe look at it like that, but God can do whatever he wants. And if your circumstances are tough, God is ultimately over you. He's, he's looking to 
have you look to him and be thankful for what you do have. Um, Aaron's rod reminded Israel of their rebellion against God's authority. And then the tablets of the covenant reminded Israel of their failure to keep the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. And so you look inside of this ark, you have these three things, right? The manna, Aaron's rod, the, ta- the, the commandments, the tablets. And then in verse 5, it says you had this mercy seat that sat on top of it. And as God looked down into the ark, he saw the symbols of Israel's sin, rebellion and failure. But when the blood of the sacrifice was applied to the mercy seat, God saw that blood covering over the sin of Israel. And he looked at the blood instead of the sin of Israel. And so that's an important thing for us to understand. Even though those things were reminders of their humanity, their failure, their inability to keep, if you will, the law, the mercy seat sits on top of it. We're going through 1 Samuel on Sunday mornings. And in two chapters, right now we're in chapter 5 where the Philistines are going to get the ark and they're going to put it in their, uh, put it in their shrine. To, and, and it's just a trip. Dagon's a little shrine there and he's going to fall face down. So God's sense of humor. We're going to see that uh, on Sunday. But the following chapter, in chapter 6, it, they send it to the five different cities of the Philistines and you begin to see things happen. Israel gets it back. And they look inside. What happens when they look inside the Ark of the Covenant? I think it's like 30,000 people die. God wipes them out in a swoop. Just We can't have all of those things without the mercy seat. The mercy seat speaks of the blood and the sacrifice. And so uh, just interesting, God says what he means. He doesn't mince his words. God's not playing games. And when he says, don't look into these things, he means... Don't look into these things. And so we can't approach God without the blood, without the sacrifice. But with the blood and with the sacrifice, what does he see? He sees you as righteous. He sees you as perfect. He sees you as complete and holy and and everything. But never can we stand before God in our own righteousness. Verses 6 through 10. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself. And for the people's sins committed in ignorance, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the, to, the, to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. And so you see this idea of a reformation, the weakness of a priestly service under the old covenant was its inability to address the need for inner transformation in man. Could it? transform you from the inside out no it was all a covering it was all symbolic it was all wait till next year and then we'll do it again and this earthly high priest had the some people say privilege we could say trepidation to be able to enter into the holy of holies and everything i read they didn't do that for very long they went in there prayed up they went in there and did their business They danced around while they did it so that they can hear those bells ringing. And they came out as soon as they could. And then they threw a party. Whoo! 
And he had to offer blood sacrifices for himself first, and then he could offer it for the people. And notice what it said in that section, for those sins that they didn't know they committed. The other sins had offerings, a sin offering and those other things, okay? Trespass offerings and those other things. When we went through Leviticus, the first, I don't know, nine chapters covers how you approach God, how you can have a relationship with God. And it's never going to be without an offering. It's never going to be without the shedding of blood. Moving on, verses 11 through 15. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, with, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having attained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And so we have a major contrast and comparison taking place here. You have the old system, the old covenant, the old way compared to what Jesus was able to do. And again, in symbolism and in type, it fails in comparison to what Jesus was able to do. Jesus' sacrifice was superior in that it was perfect, voluntary, rational, and motivated by love. That's important for us to understand. In verse 13, where it says the ashes of a heifer, I'm going to give you one. I could have, we could have spent a month in Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9 is rich. And if you don't know your Old Testament, then Hebrews 9 is going to read like, wow, this is Old Testament sounding. If you know your Old Testament and you know everything, Hebrews 9 brings living color to it. It's a beautiful, beautiful chapter of all of the types and what Jesus did. And we could do that, but I I just brought this one out, the ashes of a heifer. It refers to the remains of a burnt offering that was preserved. The ashes were sprinkled in the laver of washing to provide water suitable for ceremonial cleansing. This is Numbers chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. If you were to read that, you would see exactly what was supposed to be done. And so I've been told, I don't know uh, how recent it is, but I know definitely that they were looking for a red heifer because the temple is being built in Israel and they're going to be offering sacrifices. They need a red heifer. So all they need is a little bit of the ashes to mix with the water for the ceremonial washing. Okay, so this was was a shadow fulfilled and done away with when Jesus offered a perfect cleansing. Therefore, there is no value in holy, holy water used by the Roman Catholic Church. That's a, they're, they're using something that was symbolic of what Jesus fulfilled. And so, I don't know if you know what holy water is, but it's nothing more than water that has been prayed over by a priest. And that makes it holy. No more holy than anything coming out of your tap or out of a bottle okay and so jesus again fulfills it and i like a lot of the symbolism and within i guess religion and within you know different religions that set up these things but i think people lose the heart of what they mean and before you know it they're doing all of these rituals all of these 
religious things and they're, they're, they're disconnected from them. If they could connect to them and they can realize the rich symbolism within them, then I think, okay, I, I can see it. We are religious. We, you know, eternity is placed within our hearts, the book of Ecclesiastes says. We worship. If you don't believe that, that the world worships, go to a concert, a worldly concert, and you will see worship taking place. They know every word, every guitar, solo, pick, you know, it's just, just they worship. We are made to work. Go to a baseball game. Uh, go to a playoff game, a basketball playoff game, and you will see an excited, zealous group that is rooting for something. It's because we were created to worship. And so the symbolism, I don't mind it, but when we're doing things and they're disconnected, Jesus fulfills it. Why don't we go to the source? In verse 14, where it says, cleanse your conscience, the sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient to even restore our damaged conscience. Think of that. The Bible talks about a conscience that can be um, seared as with a hot iron. Let's see, where is that? So our conscience is a wonderful tool from God, but it isn't perfect. Our conscience can be seared. First Timothy chapter four, verse two says, our conscience can be defiled. Titus 1.15 says, our conscience can be evil. Hebrews 10.22 says, and yet God can restore, renew, replace our conscience. And it's part of our soul. And it's the part that, that gives us this sensitivity to God. And if you want to know how to strengthen your conscience, all you have to do is obey God when he tells you to do something. If you want to know how to harden your conscience, it's your heart, disobey God. And you're going to learn that the next time it'll be easier. And then the next time it'll be easier. But if you have a sensitive conscience to the things of God, then you are one that is walking in obedience to what God is calling you to in the moment that he calls you to it. And it's difficult because there's this, I don't know, for me it's embarrassing how wicked I am. That's what it ends up being for me. It's, uh, I, I've heard it said that as we grow in Christ, we sin less, but we repent more because we're getting closer to the Lord. We're seeing him in his light. And it's just a trippy thing. And I realized, Lord, I'm such a weasel. I do these things and I don't even know why I do them. It's like I'm so prideful and I'm so this and that and the other. But nonetheless, our conscience, be careful with that. It says there to serve the living God. The believer is cleansed, conscience and all, not to live unto himself, but to serve the living God. The ancient Greek word translated serve here is, I can't even pronounce it, leturio, I don't know, L-A-T-R-E-U-O, which speaks of religious and cer- or ceremonial priestly service. Spurgeon says this, we that have been purged by Christ are to render to God the worship of a royal priesthood. It is ours to present prayers, thanksgivings, and sacrifice. It is ours to offer the incense of intercession. It is ours to light the lamp of testimony and furnish the table of showbread. That's what we've been saved for, to serve Christ in that way. God has given us access and he has given us permission to be able to serve him in those ways. And so again, all these things are are types that the priests are doing. You are a royal priesthood. You are called to do those very things on behalf of God. He's commissioned you. Verses 16 through 22. 
For there, where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. So I want you to think about this. Imagine if you're a priest, not even a priest, but a high priest. So you have the first one was who? Aaron. And he goes in and he offers sacrifice into the Holy of Holies once a year, right? And so there it is. Sprinkles blood on the mercy seat. Next year, same thing happens. Year after year, takes place. And then there's a succession of priests. Aaron would die, replaced by a next one. That one would die, replaced by another one. And so now after a while, you're going to go in there, right? And once a year, there's no cleaning crew. There's no, um, you're the only one that gets to see that place once a year. And I heard this guy say that, you know what? That's how ministry can be sometimes. We start out in ministry and boy, is it exciting. Wow, can't believe that God's going to let me do this. What an honor, what a privilege. But then the next year you do it and you go in and wow, there's a few more cobwebs developing here and huh, kind of damp in here and blood, dried blood. I can, I can smell it and it's, it doesn't have that pow and that pizzazz. And, but do we ever stop and think of what God lets us get to do? And so never tire of ministry. If anything done in the name of the Lord, the Bible says even a cup of cold water given in his name, he will not let it go without being noticed. And so even though sometimes ministry can be difficult, working with people can be difficult, and and all of these challenges that we face within the ministry and an opportunity to serve God, never, never, never um, lose sight of, wow, God, I get to serve you in whatever capacity that you will let me. And it's an honor and it's a privilege. And so in this section, we see the, that verse 22 there, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. This is a foundational principle of God's dealing with men. Modern people think that sin is remitted or forgiven by time. Just enough time and God's going to overlook it. Probably had permissive parents or parents that were tough at the beginning, but after a while they would loosen up and let them get by. And so there's a lot of people like that. Or some people think that these sins will be forgiven remission by, by our good works. If my good works can just outweigh my bad works and oh my gosh, I did something horrible this week. I got to make up for it by doing these good things. Other people by our decent lives. Some people wouldn't be caught dead doing certain things. It's interesting, you know, the Lord has blessed Roxanne and I with four daughters and they couldn't be more different from one another. But you see, there's some that just have this sensitive conscience. I have two, cut them right in the middle, but I have two that they cannot lie to save their lives. It's written all over their face. They're like, 
Oh my god, I did it! You can't even lie. Oh my gosh, I just did it. And then they're telling you stuff you don't even want to hear. Okay, okay, time out. Okay, you did it. All right, don't do it again. Okay, get out of here. You know, because you don't want to hear all that stuff. It's like crazy sometimes. Um, and so some people think that, well, I'm better than, you know, so and so, or I'm better than the average. And some people think that forgiveness of sins is attained by that. Uh, where's my last group? Um, decent lives, or by simple, simply dying. Some people say, well, it's, it's over now. Yeah, now my sins are taken care of. But there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And there is no perfect forgiveness without a perfect sacrifice. Do you realize that these sacrifices were offered year by year in the hopes of something not having to be done year by year? This was uh, almost like a down payment on something that was future. This was like we were buying, t- literally buying time until the next year. And God forbid you're a true Jew today that is no tabernacle, no holy of holies, no blood being shed. What are you doing for your sins? Well, we just try to make our good works outweigh our bad works, some might say. Okay, but that's not your system. That's not what the Old Testament teaches. Okay, so they are literally living in their sins because they have no payment for those sins. Last section here, 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is, ha- it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart for, from sin for salvation. That's a rich, rich little section right there. But nonetheless, we're seeing that Jesus isn't doing something once a year on a temporal basis. He did it once and for all, no longer covering sin, but actually removing sin. The principle of sacrifice explains why the suffering of hell must be eternal for those who reject the atoning work of Jesus. You won't hear this in many churches. They are in hell to pay the penalty of their sin, but as imperfect beings, they are unable to make a perfect payment. If the payment is not perfect, then it has to be continual and constant indeed for all eternity. A soul could be released from hell the moment its debt of sin was completely paid, which is another way of saying never. You will stand before God one day, everybody in the world, right? Ever born. And you will stand in your righteousness or you will stand in the righteousness of another. There are only two camps. It's not a popular message. You can be the best human being on the planet, but you are a sinful best human being 
at best. As David Rosales told his father when he gave his life to the Lord, Dad, I love you, and you're a good man. You're probably the best man I know, and you will be the best man in hell if you don't receive Christ as your Savior. And he gave his life to the Lord. So good doesn't cut it. Perfect is what Christ requires. And he was perfect on our behalf. And so the doctrine of hell is lost today. And hell should be for the Christian the greatest motive for evangelism, the greatest motive for prayer, the greatest motive for us to open our mouth and to be an example, a light and salt in this dark world. Because hell is real. The Bible talks more about it than it does about heaven. And it's eternal, just like eternal life is eternal. And so all of these books that come out and all of these theories that come out, uh, Love Wins, Rob Bell, is that who wrote that? Um, or just lies, lies from the pit of hell. He goes on Oprah Winfrey. He goes on a speaking tour, number one bestseller book. There is no hell. In the end, everyone's going to get to go to heaven. Nothing be further from the truth. You will stand in your own righteousness or you will stand in the righteousness of another. The shedding of Jesus' blood is God's answer to man's problem of sin. In his sermon, The Blood Shedding, Spurgeon began presenting the three fools. The first is a soldier wounded on the field of battle. The medic comes to the soldier and immediately the soldier wants to know everything about the rifle and the soldier that shot him. The second fool is a ship captain whose ship is about to go under in a terrible storm. The captain is not at the wheel of the ship trying to guide it through the crashing waves. He is in his room studying charts trying to determine where the storm came from. The third fool is a man who is sick and dying with sin, about to go under the waves of God's justice, yet is deeply troubled about the origin of evil. We should look to the solution more than to the problem. We are all sinful. And we could sit there and wonder, well, was it my parents' fault? How much of it is my fault? And, and this happened to me and you don't understand. And we could sit there and we need a Savior. And we need to look to the Savior, to the solution. And we need to point people to the solution. We're sitting there trying to fix people before we present the gospel so that they can be pre- presentable when we bring them to church. That's not how it works. Bring them to church. I was listening to... Um, guy in Portland, Oregon. I told my daughter, if you can go to this guy's church. Actually, he's in Washington, just above Portland. So he's about 30, 45 minutes from her house. Um, ah, what's his name? He spoke on our last day at the... Fusco? Yes, F-U-S-C-O. So Pastor Fusco. And he was talking about um, these people that come into his church and he wants to share the gospel with them. And he said, there was a guy who came a year and he would, he would have the altar call and he would share the gospel and he'd go up to the guy after. So, so you're ready to receive the Lord? He's like, no, not yet. And he's like, what the heck, man? You've been coming for like months, dude. You've been hearing me teach. You've been watching, you know? You've been, no, I'm not ready. And he would ask him hard questions and he was the worst guy to talk to after church because he would criticize the sermon and mess with the message and just all this stuff. And he says about a year after coming to his church, he gives his life to the Lord. And now he's one of the most faithful, just awesome servants of the Lord because he stuck with it. And Fusco, Pastor Fusco, didn't 
like, no, then you just need to go. You, you know, you're coming all drunk sometimes. You're coming smelling like weed sometimes. And you're, no, he just kept loving him and pouring into him. And he would be like, oh, I got to go talk to this guy. He's going to, you know, he's going to be the thorn in my flesh or whatever. But he just loved him through it. And so I think a lot of times we're quick to try and fix people and hurry up and get them saved or whatever. God calls us to love them and leave the results up to God. And ultimately, I mean, they're going to see the light and, and the salt that we are, but we're pointing them to Jesus. Hopefully, they're going to see, if they stay or stick around us long enough, our imperfections. Hopefully, they're going to see the fact that we're human, that we mess up. And the beauty about that that I love is I have a Savior that forgives me. I have a Savior that I can run to. I have a Savior that I can call on. Yeah, I messed up. Did you see it? You saw me mess up, huh? You saw it right there. Living color. I blew it right in front of you. I got a Savior that I can run to because I'm not the perfect one. He is. And I'm pointing you to one who took my place. That's why I needed a Savior. Because I needed saving. And so I think we need to be careful. Beautiful chapter. A lot of types in the Old Testament. But bottom line, remember what the author of the book of Hebrews is doing. He's contrasting comparing Jesus to all of these systems, and he's showing that Jesus is so much better. So we need to run to Jesus. Be careful with the types. Be careful with the, uh, yeah, all those shadows. I think even the, the rituals, because, uh, again, we are Christian. I have a lot of things that I do in my life because, um, because I am a Christian. Like um, I try to go to church 52 weeks out of the year on a Sunday. There's only 52 Sundays in the year. But I try to be in church every single Sunday. It's just a good habit, a good routine. If I'm on vacation or whatever, we try to look for one out there. Sometimes we make it, sometimes we don't. Um, But um, those are just good things to do. But why do I do that? Why do I want to be in church? Why do I want to be a fellowship? We're going to see next next week, it's commanded in the scriptures. What? It's commanded to go to church? Yes. There's a commandment that says we need to go to church. But also, there's just good stuff that I learned there. There's good stuff that I can sit under and just grow in. So those are just good habits to develop. And I'm not saying that, you know, that, that if you don't go, you need to be, be condemned. I mean, you don't need to be. But develop the good things, but know why you do what you do. And I think you're all right. Well, there's a lot of good stuff, and, and it's kind of neat how it all points to the Lord. But let's not, like, again, let's remember why the Scriptures is telling us this is so that we can actually look to the Lord. We, we can commune with the Lord. All of these beautiful, wonderful types uh, that are there, I mean, it's just incredibly rich, but we're washed by the water of the word and, and the incense is a picture of prayer. Our prayer is a sin in the nostrils of God. He's pleased with it. You know, and so we can look at all these pictures, but let's actually do it and know why we do it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for just the opportunity to just grow in an understanding of our relationship with you and uh, all of these pictures of what we can do, Lord. And so I just uh, thank you that we have access into the holy, holy of holies, Lord. We can come to your throne of grace and we can come boldly to find grace to help in time of need. And so I pray that we would do just that, Lord. And uh, we thank you so much for who you are and what you're doing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.